I'm looking at our recorder, time is ticking, so I'm going to assume we are good to go. Today's topic in Abnormal Psychology, Psych 213, is chapter 12 in our book, Substance-Related and Addictive Disorders. So we've got um, some, some, a pretty cool topic to talk about. Um, here's the science sheet for today, so I'll just go ahead and pass that around. All right, here you go. Awesome. And there's our computer needs to be updated, but we're gonna ignore it right now. So um, I'm just gonna turn it down so we don't get those interruptions anymore. So this is what we're gonna talk about, substance-related disorders and addictive disorders. Now we did have a presentation earlier in the semester. There's a lot of really good detail in that. So hopefully you can refer back to that presentation and we can build on it. So let's go ahead and talk about this, right? So drug use throughout history, we can talk about that. We need to talk about it. We know that almost all cultures throughout recorded history have made the use of psychoactive properties of drugs, of substances, um, to modify mood, perception, and even brain function. So it's not like we are the first generation to abuse substances or to use substances in various ways. Um, commonly used psychoactive drugs include alcohol, opiates, nicotine, caffeine, along with many others. Um, substance involvement ranges from the occasional intake to complete dependency and compulsive use of drugs, right, that is capable of destroying a person's life. So if we talk about historically, we would use maybe medication or psychoactive substances to, to alter perceptions for religious purposes, maybe for you know, um, some kind of custom or some kind of celebration. Um, today, we still do that in some ways. If you think about it, people who throw a party for you know, graduation or whatever and alcohol is involved. Yet, the truth is that some people just aren't able to just have a little bit. They, it becomes a compulsion, it becomes overwhelming to them, it dominates their life. And by the way, you saw caffeine was on here. Caffeine is the most abused drug in the world. It's one of the things to kind of keep in mind. It is a form of a stimulant, it does provide you stimulation to the central nervous system, and it is one of the most widely used drugs uh, on the planet, so something to keep in mind. What is addiction? Now, it says, although the term addiction is widely used to describe a particular chronic pattern of substance use, DSM-5 actually got rid of that term. We don't talk about drug addiction necessarily, we talk about substance use, right? And the reason why it's not included in its terminology is because, quote, um, of its uncertain definition and its potentially negative connotation. So this idea of addiction, um, they've tried to move away from. Now, what's really curious is the DSM-5 um, has named their general category for these condition, conditions, substance-related and addictive disorders, but they don't like the term addiction. So I'm not sure why we call them addictive disorders when they don't like the term addiction. I don't know, it seems kind of odd, but it is what it is, okay? In the DSM-5, substance-related disorders are divided into two major classifications, substance use disorder and then substance-induced disorders. So substance use disorder is pathological pattern of behaviors rela related to sub or the use of subjects. Sorry, my tongue seems to be tied up today, right? So again, I'll say that again, substance use 
use disorder, pathological pattern of behaviors related to the use of a substance. Substance-induced disorders are the results of substance use, intoxication, withdrawal, induced mental uh, kind of uh, disorders or difficulties. So if I was going to kind of t in, compare this to DSM-4 or previous, right, DSM-4-TR or before, substance-induced disorders really would be what we would call dependency. Again, causing some kind of intoxication withdrawal, something more than just a pathological use, right? And then, of course, if we were going to talk about it from DSM-4 standards or TR standards, we would probably say that substance use disorders has more to do with substance abuse. So anytime that there is a pathological pattern of substance use, it seems to be more abuse than it is something else. Um, in the DSM-5, the distinction between substance dependence and substance abuse was eliminated. Uh, I think it's still there a little bit, but it's more hidden. Um, behaviors to which these terms referred to are now incorporated in the criteria for substance use disorders. So it's some of the stuff just to kind of pay attention to. We changed the name a little bit when, in May of 2013. All right, any questions? DSM-5 considers symptoms um, to be loosely organized into four general clusters. So that's what we tend to look for. Number one, impaired control over the use of a substance. So using when you know you're not supposed to, um, using in excess of what you're supposed to. Um, number two, social impairments that result from its use. So the impact that it has on your life and yet you continue to choose to use. Risky use of a substance. This could be, again, using a substance, you know, drinking and driving, um, operating heavy machinery, um, you know, an airplane pilot who uh, drinks excessively and then, you know, goes to his job or something like that. And then pharmacological criteria. So there is a pharmacological part uh, criteria that's the fourth kind of general cluster to pay attention to. And notice um, substance-specific syndrome. Um, not all substances really kind of center in here. We tend to focus a little bit more on certain substances rather than other ones, some of the bigger ones, and we'll talk about them as we go through. Questions about any of that? All right. Two terms that I want to define. One is tolerance and one is withdrawal. Tolerance is a need for increased amounts of a substance to have the desired effect. Um, I'll just kind of, uh, you know, use this example. Maybe when you first started drinking, right, after one or two beers or glasses of wine, you would feel the effects. But now you've been drinking for a while, and in order to feel the same effect, it now takes you four beers or maybe a six-pack, you know, six beers instead of just two to feel the effects. So, again, you're developing a tolerance. Your body has found a way to cope with the substance in there and has tried to work towards a homeostasis, a balance, right? And then withdrawal is the second part of that, though. It's a specific psychological and physiological reaction to discontinuation of a substance which can be relieved by taking the substance again, right? It says here, note, neither tolerance nor withdrawal is required for the diagnosis of substance use disorder. 
in DSM-4 and before, we used to require it to show that there was some kind of addiction. Now it's just using, without withdrawal, without tolerance, but using inappropriately, using at risky times. Again, that may or may not be related to, to tolerance or withdrawal. And here's the way I want you to kind of picture this. Tolerance, again, has to do with your body getting used to a substance being there, right? Find to find a new balance, a functional balance to work with. Withdraw, this is my terms. It's almost as if your body has gotten so used to having the substance there that to not have it seems abnormal to the body. And so your body goes through withdrawal symptoms, cravings, a desire to have it, even though you know it's bad for you. And that desire could be psychological, maybe it becomes a crutch for you to function, or maybe it's physiological, where if you don't have it, you go through physiological withdrawal symptoms. And it has to do with your body's so used to having it there, now it's not, and you're going through those symptoms. So the best example I can give you, um, you know, when sometimes people say, I don't understand what it feels like, what would that feel like? Well, if you're someone that drinks a lot of caffeine, since caffeine is one of the most abused uh, substances on the planet, here's what I want you to do. If you're a caffeine drinker, you like your cup of coffee or tea or your morning rush of Red Bull or whatever the hell it is that you drink, here's what I want you to do for one week after semester is done because I don't want to deal with you going through withdrawal symptoms, all right? So for one week, I want you to stop using that substance of caffeine. Do you drink coffee? Do I drink coffee? I do not drink coffee. Is that why? No, I, I just I don't like the flavor of coffee. Thanks for asking though. I love the smell of coffee, but the, the texture, it's a texture thing with me. I don't like the way it coats the tongue. However, I do like my Mountain Dew. So I have my own vices, right? But here's what I want you to do. I guarantee you within a day or two, you are gonna have a headache, you're gonna be irritable, you're gonna be like grumpy. You're, and part of the reason is because your body is so used to having caffeine in it, to not have it, you start to go through withdrawal. And that's what an addict goes through. Yes. Yeah, what are you doing with that? Yeah, yeah. So again, and, and it's what happens, go without and you are going to be, I guarantee it, irritable. And that's both psychologically or physiologically. Again, you can develop it as a crutch. You can become irritable when you're going through psychological withdrawal. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, uh, right. So what I can tell you is if you're ever curious, like what does it feel like to go through withdrawal symptoms or why don't people just stop using? Imagine that. Imagine and, and not being able 
to fight it off, to deal with it. I mean, you were able to kind of wean yourself off caffeine, but a lot of other people just can't do it. And then some substances have such a greater impact, almost really hooks into your um, neural system, and so your body goes through even stronger withdrawal. In fact, alcohol, um, delirium tremors are the withdrawal symptoms for alcohol. Delirium tremors, alcohol can kill you. Alcohol withdrawal, if it is not monitored closely, can result in death. It is one of the most severe withdrawals on a physiological level. And yet, here in the United States, it's legal. So just. Um, is it not legal in other places? I'm gonna say that worldwide alcohol is probably you know, used throughout the world. There's some places that are dry, in other words, they're not encouraged to drink. Some places you're not, right, you're not encouraged to be seen in public drunk. Believe it or not, you know, especially in some places where a lot of drinking happens, to be seen drunk in public is an embarrassment to the family. Yet here in the United States, to be drunk in public seems to be what I'll just say some people shoot for. Not exactly the best plan. Yeah, and that's like some dry, in, in the United States, there are still some dry towns, dry counties, where you can't buy alcohol and you can't, there's no bars. Um, now, if you carry it in and you drink it in your private home, or is someone going to say something? I don't know about that. But in general, you can't buy it and you can't, you know, consume it on, on premises. So, again, that's some of the stuff to kind of think about. Every place is a little different. So, let's go ahead and take a look a little further, right? Substance use disorders. Generally, at least two of the criteria are needed within a 12-month period to meet for the diagnosis or qualify for the diagnosis. And just like with some of the other disorders, we can rate its severity. We can say whether it's mild. Mild severity means that you have two to three symptoms. Um, moderate means you have four to five symptoms. Severe means six or more symptoms. So again, that's just one way to kind of think about it. And the core specifiers are used to distinguish whether the disorder is early or maybe it's a sustained remission or maybe it's in a controlled environment. For example, if you were addicted to a substance and you might say, well, you know, I'm not using right now. So we might say substance use disorder in remission in a controlled environment. Why would it be important to add in a controlled environment? What do you think? Right, right. So yeah, you're staying clean, but some, there's some pressure there to keep you clean, or maybe access is limited to get to the substance. So the question is, would you still be in remission or would you still be abstinent if you weren't in a controlled environment? That's why controlled environment is important, like, you know, modifier to put on there, or on maintenance therapy. And you might say, well, what do you mean by maintenance therapy? Well, that's where a person takes an agonist drug to kind of counteract um, the effects. So maybe you're addicted to heroin, right, and you're taking methadone. 
right, which is a maintenance drug. You take methadone, then you don't go through the withdrawal symptoms of heroin, and you don't seem to have the, the cravings for heroin. Originally, when methadone was introduced, the idea was that methadone is easier to get you off of than heroin, so we would switch addictions, get you over to methadone, and then we would back off the methadone. Um, that doesn't tend to be the, the case anymore. Again, it's a maintenance drug, just like if you took a blood pressure medication. Um, some people don't like that. Some people, it's a very controversial kind of approach, but again, which is better, having someone you know, OD and die in the streets or you know, have them on a maintenance drug? Maybe the maintenance drug's a better way to go. So I just throw that out there for you. All right, um, typically the person continues to use the substance even while knowing that it causes persistent physical or psychological harm or a problem um, that's made worse or caused by the addiction, by the use, um, if you will. I gotta get away from addiction. Um, so used to doing that as a former drug and alcohol counselor, so I gotta keep that in mind. The pattern of use uh, produces significant social or occupational problems, interferes with fulfilling major roles of life, major duties. Um, and this continued use of the substance, despite significant distress or impairment um, that it causes, is central to the diagnosis. So you're using a substance, it's, you're, it's knowingly causing you difficulty, and yet you continue to use it um, to, to maybe avoid uh, you know, the withdrawal symptoms or tolerance or just uh, whatever, or just a way to cope or, or you know, all those kind of things. Um, this class of substance-induced disorders, let's talk a little bit about that now. So what we were talking about was substance use disorders. What about substance-induced disorders? Well, this class of substance-related disorders does not involve maladaptive patterns of a substance use by itself, but rather the syndromes and consequences produced as a result of its recurrent ingestion. So substance intoxication, substance withdrawal, or cognitive and psychological impairments. So you could have a substance use disorder with substance-induced symptoms. You know what I mean? You could do that. You know, maybe you have alcohol abuse or, or alcohol use, substance use disorder, alcohol related with substance intoxication. So again, something to kind of think about. Um, substance intoxication, what is it? A reversible change in behavior and cognition that occurs within a short time after ingesting a substance and is the result of the substance physiological effects on the central nervous system. The onset typically occurs within minutes of use and resolves as the body metabolizes the substance. So again, it could last for a period of time, a shorter period of time. If it's a quick metabolizing substance, then you know, it goes away just as quickly as you took it. And then of course, it's more addictive. You tend to want to take it again and again and again and again. If it takes a little longer to kind of wean out of it, then you know, that's different, yeah. One person is one beer, like brand, you take two people that have never tried alcohol before, one person has one beer and one person takes nine for them to do right. the same thing. So is it like a combination of the substance itself being metabolized along with? There's multiple factors. Oh. 
So it can be the gender of the person. It can be the person's genetic makeup. It can be how much food they had in their stomach when they used it. Um, so there's all these things that can affect metabolism rates. Um, but that's the varying part. You know, I, I worked with a guy who um, had an alcohol problem and he walked into a hospital, all right? Now he was intoxicated. Um, he walked in, the police showed up because he was visibly intoxicated. But he walked into the hospital with a blood alcohol level of 0.34. Now that is over three times the legal limit, right? So if you think about that, right? Um, 0.34, right? 0.08 is the legal limit, right? Usually to be point or 0.1. But at 0.28, you're supposed to start losing consciousness. And this person's walking at 0.34. And so their body's doing something with alcohol that yours and mine could not do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Their body's doing something with it. Now, it's still having an effect. His eyes were yellow, jaundice, his liver was shot. He was drinking a bottle, of, of, you know, a fifth of vodka a day and two 40-ounce quarts of beer. Just to function to keep from going through withdrawal symptoms. That's something that you and I could not do. So his body is metabolizing and it's focused on using that. What's really sad is that you'll see this in long-term alcoholics. So their tolerance will increase, 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 increase. They'll need more and more and more of the substance. Then as their liver starts to become, you know, get cirrhosis, then it can't work as efficiently. Then what happens is they seem to lose tolerance. And so it decreases. So, you know, after 25 years, they're like, well, yeah, I used to drink a six pack, but now I'm only drinking one or two beers, right? Because their liver's so shot, they can't process more of it. But they write that off as being, oh, see, I'm better than I was. And no, physiologically, or they're way worse. So again, it's, it's, this, it's this really mixed, right, mixed bag. Now, the manifestations of intoxication can can vary widely um, between individuals who take the same substance. And again, it can be affected by dosage. Are you drinking, if we're talking about alcohol, you're doing whiskey, you're doing wine, you're doing beer. Is it light beer? All of those make a difference, right? Um, so tolerance of the substance, dosage, the person's expectations of the substance effect. Your psychological expectation can have an impact. If you're looking forward to going out and having a good time, you're in a different mindset than if you're drinking alone because you just broke up with your you know, partner. And that expectation makes a difference. It can have an impact. Um, Substance-specific syndrome. Um, you know, we could talk about substance withdrawal. That's the next one. So a substance-specific syndrome involving behavioral, psychological, cognitive changes that occur after sensation or reduction of substance use and following a, per a period of prolonged use. So if you're using, 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 your body's gotten used to it, and now all of a sudden you're going through withdrawal symptoms of not having it, right? The symptoms of withdrawal are usually the opposite of the symptoms of intoxication. So intoxication, you feel good, you feel better, you feel maybe full of energy or whatever. You know, withdrawal, you feel just the opposite, right? So a lot of negative kind of uh, uh, impact. 
It's nearly always accompanied by a craving for the substance, the administration of which reverses the withdrawal syndrome. So you're going to have cravings. You want more and more of the substance. Your body's going through withdrawal. You don't have it. You're starting to feel crappy. If you take the substance, you feel good again. Again, that just adds into this kind of cyclical pattern of use and then withdrawal and then use and then withdrawal and then use, right? So um, withdrawal syndromes occur uh, with many but not all substances of abuse. Um, withdrawal symptoms uh, described in the DSM-5 for alcohol, alcohol, caffeine, cannabis, and you go, wait, 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 I didn't think marijuana had withdrawal. No, no, there's psychological and I believe a physiological withdrawal from marijuana. One of the things about marijuana that people don't fully understand is that marijuana lasts in your system. If you use today, you can find that in your bloodstream for 28 days, up to 28 days after your use. Isn't that when they take hair samples too because it's still in your hair mm -hmm. follicles? Right, right, because your hair follicles you've had for longer than 28 days. I mean, that hair's been growing for a while. If you have really long hair, then they can go back years, right? But one of the things that that they do is, uh, again, it takes about a month for it to wean itself out of your system. So that means there's a, still some of that substance in there. That's a pretty nice wean-off period. And I think that's why people have said in the past that you know, marijuana is not physiologically addictive. I think it is. But I think because that wean-off period, it's very insidious. It, you know, it's, it hides. You don't see it as blatantly. Alcohol, it's out of your system within what, 24 hours, right? Cocaine, much less time. So again, substances take different times to get out of your system, and I think that impacts how quickly the withdrawal comes on and how bad you're going to feel about it. So I'm just letting you know. Notice it says here some of the other ones, tobacco, stimulants, opioids, sedatives, hypnotics, um, and anti-anxiety drugs. Notice there's no caffeine use disorder that exists yet. So while we talk about caffeine showing a withdrawal symptom, the fact of having a caffeine use disorder, that you're using it, you know, this is again the, the, the backside. This is the substance-induced symptoms. We can see that for caffeine, but substance use, and I think because it's so widely used across the world, it's difficult to, to really say that, you know? Notice DSM-5 does not identify a substance withdrawal classification for either hallucinogens or inhalants, um, which is, again, sniffing things like gasoline or paint or, you know, paint thinner or any of those kind of things. If you are a marker sniffer from way back, you know, that's a form of inhalant. What it does is it causes you to get lightheaded because it's denying your brain oxygen. And so that's why people get that. They feel lightheaded. They feel nauseous. Again, they feel different. It's a, a way to escape. That's what addiction tends to be. I know, not addiction, but drug use tends to be. Yeah? Um, I know sometimes you get, like, for the familiar questions, like, how do you perceive things? Right. Um, should we, like, remember, like, what you said about the marijuana? Um, I mean, it could be on there as a bonus question. Um, it might not be. Um, there's so much other stuff that I can focus on, um, you know, there's just so much. So, I, you know, I know I just told you I wrote the exam, but I'm not going to tell you what's on it. 
I know, I did. I bumped it with my elbow, right? Which way did I go? Oh, I just screwed it up. Come on. That's where we're at? There we go. All right. So let's move on. So we're back to where we're supposed to be. I, I bumped it with my elbow. Sorry. Um, so substance withdrawal disorder uh, or substance withdrawal. Um, again, withdrawal symptoms can be severe. Um, they could be associated with perceptual disturbances, even seizures. Um, in many cases, they're mild too. So again, there's extreme. It depends on the substance as to what you're going through. Um, the most intense withdrawal symptoms generally subside within a few days after appearing, although subtler um, symptoms can persist for weeks. It's one of the things that oftentimes happens. Um, one of the things when I was working in drug and alcohol field, um, oftentimes someone who's coming down from a substance who they're, you know, they're kind of weaning themselves off, they're, they're trying to get off the substance or stay abstinent, oftentimes they'll become depressed. And so the tendency is to want to label them with major depression. And that's really, you got to be cautious about that because is it really major depression or is it just the, the subtle effects of the withdrawal that are still lingering around weeks afterwards. And I, I tend to lean towards that idea that it's those subtle effects that are still lingering. In fact, one of the things they say is that you shouldn't diagnose, for someone who's got a substance abuse disorder um, or use disorder, you shouldn't uh, diagnose any other kind of mental health concerns for about six months to allow time for their body to, you know, kind of get that, to get through the subtle kind of withdraw symptoms that they're suffering from. Um, Substance-induced uh, mental disorders, um, it's in addition to intoxication and withdrawal, the substance-induced disorders um, include conditions um, which other mental disorders like depression and anxiety are also induced by substances. This is kind of new to DSM-5. We really didn't talk about this before. You know, again, we might say that you have an adjustment disorder or something else. Now there's some acknowledgement in DSM-5 that, hey, you could be suffering from depression or anxiety as a result of using this substance. Um, in general, the more sedating the drugs tend to induce more depressive disorders, the more stimulating drugs tend to induce more psychotic disorders or anxiety-ridden disorders, so things to think about. So, what are some commonly abused drugs and their characteristics? I've got a couple charts on the, on the slides here. I'm not going to read every single slide to you, but I think that we'll just kind of go over them just so you have some general ideas, right? So, we talk about alcohol. Um, notice it says medical use is rare, sometimes used as a sedative for tension, things like that. I mean, maybe back in the day before we had other kind of pain relieving medication, might have you take a shot of whiskey or something before a medical procedure. Um, but again, today there are so many other drugs that can be used. Alcohol is not the preferred choice. Um, and does it cause withdrawal symptoms? Alcohol, sure it does, and we know that. Sedatives, again, you can see the whole list of sedatives on here. Things like Valium, right, Quaaludes, uh, barbiturates. 
Uh, again, the medical use sometimes for insomnia or attention, um, maybe to in induce some kind of pain relieving kinds of effects. Uh, so, you know, some numbness. Um, there are withdrawal symptoms, and so you have to be careful of sedatives. We've got stimulants, caffeine, coffee, you know, tea, Coca-Cola, any kind of cola that has caffeine in it. Mountain Dew could easily be put on there. No-dose or caffeine pills taken to keep you awake. Um, again, what do they produce? A mild stimulant, um, maybe treatment of some forms of coma, believe it or not. Um, but there are withdrawal symptoms. And you notice there's withdrawal symptoms on all these. Nicotine. Again, no medical use that we know of for, for tobacco or for nicotine, I should say. So one of, you can say, oh, well, you know, I use it medicinally. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, amphetamines. Um, again, treatment for obesity, narcolepsy, fatigue, uh, attention deficit disorder. When we use some of those, there are withdrawal symptoms that can come from it. So again, it's one of the things that we see. Metamphetamines can be highly abusive, and it's one of the things that we have to be careful of. Some other ones, cocaine, definitely withdraw symptoms, right? Um, cannabis sativa or marijuana, um, we see that. Again, the medical uses, I'm going to say, is still under investigation. So, you know, med medical marijuana, you know, it's like thing, the thing here in the United States. Um, what I'm going to tell you is back in the day, uh, Marijuana was used for, for multiple kinds of, of uses. And then the federal government decided around the 1940s, marijuana's bad, it can't be, you can't use it, um, it's, it's against the law. It became put on um, their controlled substance list with no medical use. Now we're finding that's not necessarily true. Um, there does seem to be some medical use, but I wanna caution you Marijuana is not the Prozac of the you know, 21st century. It's not the do-all, end-all. It doesn't fix everything. If, you, if you're out in the streets and you're, you're here in Pen, you know, Pennsylvania even, right? you see all these ads for CBD, right? CBD, CBD, cannabinoids. They're, they're the saving grace. You, you have a problem, cannabinoids will fix it. There's no substance that uniformly fixes all problems. It just doesn't exist. And I don't think, in the long like, run, I don't think you're gonna find that is true of marijuana. I don't think you're gonna find that it fixes everything. I think there's some things it can be useful for, but I think we have to be very cautious. So I'm just gonna throw that out there, right? Something to think about, okay? I don't know where we're gonna end up. Um, what's really interesting, if you look at the population above 65, above 65, a majority of people above 65 say marijuana is bad, should never be legalized. If you look below 65, majority of people say marijuana is okay and it should be legalized. So I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be interesting, right? Um, so again, what is it right now according to our textbook? Well, potentially may be used for appetite enhancement. We know it does seem to do that. Glaucoma, it does seem to have that kind of effect, right? Some neurodegenerative conditions. Uh, may relieve some side effects of chemotherapy, seems to be there. The new thing they just said in Pennsylvania is now medical marijuana can be prescribed for anxiety disorders. So again, um, we'll see what the long-term long effects are. But I'd be cautious too, you know, keep in mind anything that we smoke can cause lung, you know, damage. And so 
You know, you might go, well, yeah, your marijuana is great. I can smoke whenever I want to. Yeah, but you're still smoking. You're taking something in. There's other ways, you know. So I think that's where you start to see these edibles starting to come in and things like that. Opioids, uh, or opiates, um, again, another um, drug category, heroin, methadone, morphine, codeine, um, can be used for treat, treatment of severe pain, diarrhea, cough, um, is, uh, does have withdrawal symptoms, and then hallucinogens, LSD, you know, mescaline. Um, experimental study of the mind and brain function is what they say for medical use. Uh, I don't know. You really want an experimental study? I'm just saying, right? Notice it says no for uh, withdrawal symptoms, uh, but LSD can actually linger in the body long after you use it. Um, it's one of those things that can happen. It, can, it, it seems to have the potential to unlock neural pathways that then don't get shut off. So there are people who report having a bad trip during an LSD use um, and then having flashbacks on an almost permanent basis after that because of the use. So I'd, you know, think about that. It, maybe it unlocks some pathways you may or may not want to unlock. I'll just throw it out there. Um, some other ones, well, there's volatile solvents that sometimes are used as inhalants, um, things like glue, gasoline. Um, usually there's no medical use for that. Um, and notice no withdrawal symptoms, not that we can identify, but it does, again, have the potential for brain damage and esophagus uh, difficulties and problems. Nutmeg? Yeah, nutmeg's on there too. I guess sniffing nutmeg. Do not go home and sniff nutmeg because you're like, wow, I want to check this out. No, <laughs> don't, yeah. Um, and then the last one, kind of in its own little uh, space by itself, PCP. Um, ketamine is actually, uh, believe it or not, Ketamine is actually a cat tranquilizer. <laughs> they call it Special K. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. PCP, I believe, was an elephant tranquilizer. Somehow somebody, I don't know, got shot with it and said, wow, it has some kind of effect on me, and voila, go figure. Um, so again, we, we know there's no medical use for that. Um, we suspect no withdrawal, but uh, again, I caution you, even these ones with no withdrawal, that doesn't mean they don't cause harm. Something to think about. Um, some commonly abused drugs, some short and long-term effects. So again, some more charts. I'll let you take a look over these. Talks about alcohol and sedative stimulants and nicotine. Again, some of the possible long-term effects are pretty severe. So make sure that you take a look at those, right? You know, irreversible brain damage for alcohol. I mean, you know, it's pretty severe. Um, sleep disorders, sexual dysfunctions, whole bunches of stuff. You know, and, then, and again, both short-term and long-term effects. Sometimes people use it for the short-term effect, but the long-term effect can be you know, detrimental um, over time. Um, and again, it's for all of these. So go ahead and take a look at these charts if you have any questions. All right, any questions about that? All right. So let's development of substance use disorders. How do they develop? Well, some substances are associated with a greater risk of dependence and abuse than others. We know this, right? Generally, fast-acting substances present more of a risk of dependence than slower-acting ones. I want an effect. I, I want it now. I take the substance. I feel an effect within minutes, within hours. That tends to be more preferred than I take a substance and I've got to wait for the effect to come about. Again, 
some of the purposes for why we use drugs, to escape, right, to change our moods. You don't want to wait for either one of those, right? You want to have more of an effect quicker. So that's one of the things we know. Um, we know that the methods of administration that deliver the psychoactive components of the drug to the brain more quickly are associated with higher degrees of, of dependence. And I used to say this when I was doing drug and alcohol work, you know, most people don't like needles, for example. Most people do not enjoy getting shots or needles. So if you're shooting up, you're using needles to inject drugs, that's a pretty, that's a, that's, you're desiring the drug so quickly, that's pretty big. So I always tell people that, you know, if you're using, you know, do you like needles? And people always say, oh, I hate needles. Yeah, so why are you using? Why are you shooting up? Well, I want to get the feeling as fast as I can. Right. Again, more associated with dependence. It's one of the things that we see. Um, just to give you some use, here's some substances that are most easily to get hooked on. Um, this is from your textbook. It's from 1990. I would argue that, again, that's 30 years old, the research. Eh, maybe I could find a better study. Um, but these are just some, notice it says, the most difficult to quit uh, according to a zero to 100 scale ranked by experts in substance abuse. So nicotine, uh, methamphetamine that's smoked, crack, crystal meth, all very high as you notice. Valium, quaaludes, right? Alcohol is big, heroin. Notice that alcohol is higher on the scale than heroin. Think too, because alcohol can be more integrated into our lifestyle, which I, I, I think is also the reason why nicotine becomes so high on the list, right? Um, crank, which is amphetamine taken nasally. You know, caffeine, caffeine's still about 70. On a scale of zero to 100, being how difficult or how easy it is to get hooked, 70 is, is a pretty high score, you know? And then we see it drops off considerably when we get down to marijuana, ecstasy, um, LSD, you know, uh, uh, psychedelic mushrooms, all sorts of stuff, mescaline. Notice those are about 20. I might, I don't know if I fully agree with the marijuana. And I'll tell you why. Because I think psychologically, marijuana presents more of a risk than maybe physiologically. Because people seek out that kind of high that mellow feel, whatever it is that for them that works. Does that kind of make sense? So I, I don't know if I would put marijuana as low down there. This is 1990. And keep in mind, one of the things, especially with illicit substances, with illegal substances, you know, the control of quality control goes right out the window when you're dealing with anything illegal. There is no checks and balances. And the substances that are on the street today are different than the substances that were on the streets 30 years ago. They're not the same purity, they're not the same dosages, and this is one of the things that sometimes happens. You might hear of, hear, hear of someone who has a heroin overdose. Well, they used 20 years ago. They stayed clean for a period of time. They went back and they tried to use the way they used to use way back in the day, and it's so different today than it was back then that they actually overdose and die, die as a result of the relapse. So again, these are all things just to pay attention to. Some relapse rates for different substances. Again, similar relapse rates across different substances. We can see heroin. Um, you can see relapse rates, um, very high relapse rates within the first two weeks. Then it kind of drops off a little bit. 
but it's still a high if you take a look at it. Again, we also see alcohol and tobacco, all three of them very similar. See those same kind of patterns. You can make it a month out. If you can even make it, they used to talk about three months out. If you can make it three months, 90 days without using, you're on the right path. Three months out, we take a look, three months out, eh, about a 40% chance, right, that you're going to be able to maintain your, your, your abstinence. So, again, it's something to kind of think about. It's not as easy as you might think. Um, some causal factors for where it developed. Well, back in the day, we used to think it was a moral failure. We used that excuse, right, that the person, this is prior to the Civil War, that if a person was... Um, using substances abusively it was because some moral failure within their character, right? A weak character, a lack of moral fiber. Again, we know that's not true today. There's physiology that starts to come into play, and regardless of how motivated you are to get clean, that physiology can take over. The physical disease model. The addiction to drugs is uh, internal to the individual and due to an underlying presumably genetically transmitted predisposing factor that seems to have taken pretty much the big lead in throughout most of you know modern contemporary history and then the third one is the interaction model that addiction to drugs reflects both biological and psychological factors together um, that have produced these brain cravings so again you desire the feeling that you get from it as well as you your body desires the substance itself on a physiological level. So I would say these last two models, the moral failure model, we know it's not that. It's not willpower or a lack of willpower. There is a physiological connection and a psychological connection that then comes into play. So I think that's what we see today. Some other factors for substance dependence, genetics. Again, I gave you that example of the person that I worked with. His body is doing something way different with alcohol than yours or mine could do. So genetics comes into play. We do see alcoholism runs in families. We see that. And you might go, well, my, my parents never drank. My great-grandparents you know, drank, but my, my parents never drank. Yeah, it can appear to skip a generation, but that has more to do with the fact that maybe your parents never chose to drink. So if you choose not to drink in the first place, then you don't unlock that genetic predisposition. Make sense? You don't grow up in that kind of family. You grow up in a family where you didn't see the negative effects of, of alcohol, for example. I'll just pick on alcohol. So you start drinking, and then you become susceptible. Your parents were too. It's just they never drank to, to trigger it. Does that kind of make sense? So some of the stuff we see. Some neurological factors, again, some biology, some neurochemistry that happens. We have some socio or social, psychosocial components, cultural factors. United States, we have a weird relationship with alcohol that many other countries don't have. We see you know, drinking as being a rite of passage. We make a big deal about it at 21. You know, I mean, in, you know, in the United States, you can own a bar at 18 but you can't drink in it until you're 21. You can go and die for the country and sign up for the army or for you know, the, a branch of the military, but you can't drink legally. So we have this weird relationship. Many other countries, they don't have that relationship. It's not that kind of carrot dangling at the end of a stick. And so I think that's part of the problem, one of the reasons why we have the problems that we have too. 
Um, again, I think that comes into it. Drugs as reinforcers. You know, they do tend to be reinforcers. They, they reinforce you feel good. They have a pleasurable impact on your body. That's reinforcing. You want pleasure. You seek pleasure. It's reinforcing. You continue that. Conditioning factors. Maybe you learned. This is how you celebrate. When I got married in my first marriage, um, we uh, didn't have, we, we you know, paid for the wedding ourselves. We didn't have a ton of money. Um, we got married in a church, and then we had the reception in the basement of the church. There was no alcohol. It was a dry reception. There were people who did not come because they didn't know how to celebrate without alcohol. So, again, conditioning factors. Expectancy. Believe it or not, expectancy comes into play. If you expect that, that you're going to have a good time, that, that can have that kind of outcome. Um, if you use stuff like hallucinogens, things like LSD, they tell you if you get in the wrong mindset, if you had a, a bad trip, if you start thinking about the negative sides, then you're going to you know, kind of have that happen. I would argue alcohol is the same way. If you're depressed and you drink with alcohol, you're going to get more depressed. That's what alcohol does. It depresses the central nervous system. That's why it overrides your inhibitions. So if you're outgoing and it overrides your inhibitions, you're going to tend to be more outgoing to a point. And then the depressive symptoms kick in, and that's one of the things you see. So when you see someone black out from alcohol use, it is suppressing their consciousness, their alertness. And that's one of the reasons why a person can drink, drink, drink. Whatever's in your stomach is still be, to be metabolized and processed by your body. People can stop drinking. Their blood alcohol level will continue to rise after they stop drinking because of the alcohol in their stomach. And sometimes they overdose and they die from alcohol poisoning. You go, well, they stopped drinking an hour ago. Yeah, but their belly was filled with alcohol and it kept going higher and higher and higher. Again, the risks. And then social influences. Are we influenced by society, by our friends and family? First time I drank was because my friend encouraged me to do so. Not because I had a desire necessarily, but I was encouraged. Substance-induced disorders. Here's the whole list. I know. Luckily, I'm not going to have you like determine the difference between these, but you know. Some of them are kind of giveaway. You can kind of figure what the substance use is, right? So substance-induced disorders, alcohol-induced disorders, amphetamine-induced disorders, caffeine-induced disorders, cannabis-induced disorders, cocaine, hallucinogens, inhalants, nicotine, opiates, right? PCP-induced, and then sedatives, hypnotics, and, you know, again. So uh, it just depends on what the substance is. That's kind of the, the identifier. And then based on that chart that I'm, I'm telling you guys to look over on your own, you would expect certain things based on the results of that medication. How does that drug impact the body? So again, is it a stimulant? Is it a depressant? You know, it's a hallucinogen. What does it do? Um, some of the other ones, again, some of those hypnotic, sedative kinds of ones um, we see intoxication. Intoxication delirium, where they become delirious, right? Where again, they might start to almost, it appears almost like hallucinations, but it's not. They're just, they're just not, how do I want to put it, um, connected with reality as much. Yes? How do you pronounce that third 
I knew you were going to ask that. I'm not sure. Okay. How about that? Is that, is that a good answer? Yeah, because I wasn't either. Yeah. Um, you know what? Let's look it up online. Do you have a phone? I do. Go to pronounce.com. Pronounce.com? Yeah. Pronounce.com, and then type that word in. Turn up your speaker. We'll learn together. My knee's bugging me. I know, you can do any kind of word you can put in there. You can put in, there's one for names, how to pronounce names. It is. I, I'm telling you, I, sometimes I practice before I come to class because I don't know, I always get them right. Right. And like the one's daughter, she says, oh, she goes by Grace. And I was like, make people learn her name. Like, don't like conform to like us. Like, right. Like, us conform to you. Like, yeah. Like, name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, again, does it, are you listening? How, how do you? You should be able to type the word in. Where, though? There's not a button to type it in. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, this is an ad, so we don't want to go to that. Let's see. Let's go to Google. Because it looks like it has the prefix of anxious, so anxiolytic or huh. anxiolytic. No, I think that's an. I think that X is pronounced unique. A N. Here we are recording this. <laughs> I know. Hey, you know what? It's cool. It's good. So here we go. Anxiolytic. Anxiolytic. Ooh. Anxiolytic. See, uh, the X is like it's a more of a Z. Anxiolytic. So. Sedative, hypnotic, and anxiolytic-induced disorders. That's the category, right? So again, you can see um, intoxication, intoxication delirium, withdraw, withdraw delirium, persisting dementia, or memory impact, right? Persisting amnesic disorders. So again, these are gonna have some impact on memory, on consciousness, you know, on functioning. Induced psychotic mood, anxiety, sexual, or sleep disorders. All can be the result of this substances. So stuff to kind of pay attention to. What about treatment? What's treatment look like? Well, here's what we know. Treatment can be particularly difficult because of, because of relapse rates. That's it. You know, there's this, again, you want to feel better. You're trying to get better, but you're feeling worse. It's like you've got to get over that hump, right? But until you get over the hump, it feels terrible. And you know that all you have to do is go back and use a little bit of the substance and you're gonna feel better. So how is that not rewarding in and of itself? That's part of the reason why, right? So that's the relapsing nature of the disorder and many people are not motivated to change. They enjoyed the high. They're seeking the effects of the medication. That's, or the drug, that's why they used it to begin with. That's one of the reasons why they used it to begin with. Now, what I'm gonna tell you is as a drug and alcohol counselor, right, one of the things that I oftentimes did is 
You have to understand, to tell someone you're never going to use, you said that you got yourself off of caffeine, right? To say that you're never, ever, ever going to use caffeine again for the rest of your life until you're in old age is almost unbelievable, right? So to think that you're never going to use again. So people see that and they go, there's no way I can do it. I might as well give up now. So I say that, you know, don't ever use again. You go, no. So then we back it off and say, well, don't use today. Because you can make it through 24 hours without using caffeine. Can you make it through 24 years? You know, who knows? But 24 hours you can make it through. And maybe when the cravings are really bad and the relapse is really bad, your goal is to make it through the next hour without using. So it's just about setting these little doable, attainable goals and getting there. And one of the things that a drug and alcohol counselor is never going to tell you, but it's what we all know to be true, is this. You ready? We know you're going to relapse again. We know that all of our clients are going to relapse again. We know it. But what can we do? What do we shoot for? We shoot for lengthening the space between relapses. Lengthen the amount of abstinence and shortening the relapse periods. So let's say that you've been using alcohol for 15 years, right? You've been drinking excessively 15 years. You get clean. You make it a year and a half before you go on a two-month binge. Okay, you made it a year and a half. Now you're back in treatment. Our goal is to get you longer than a year and a half, right? Our goal is to get you. We're, no, we're not going to tell you that. We're going to say every day, stay clean, stay clean. But we're successful if you make it five years now. So you've made it five years without a relapse. And when you relapse, you go on the wagon for, you, you know, you, you fall off the wagon for one month. Did you improve? Because the first time you made it a year and a half, you were gone for three months. Now you made it five years, you're gone for one month. Have you improved? So our goal, we know, is planting a seed. I used to think of it this way. Someone comes to me, even if they don't want to come to treatment, they come to treatment, they don't want to be there. What I'm figuring is I'm planting a seed. You don't have to believe whether you have a drug and alcohol problem or not. You don't have to believe that. But here's what I know. From this point forward, because you interacted with me, there will always be in the back of your head my voice going, maybe you have a problem. Always in the back of your head. As much as you try to drink or use or ignore it or say, Bailey was full of crap, mm -mm, I'm there. And all I'm doing is planting a seed. And I know the next therapist that you come in contact with because of a DUI or for whatever reason, they're going to water that seed. They're going to put some more nutrients on that seed. And then the next person, the next therapist you come in contact with is going to nurture the seed from a seedling. And it's going to take root. So you're, once you enter treatment, you are never going to enjoy your high like you used to. You're not. Because there will always be in the back of your head a little doubt that maybe you might have a problem. And by the way, if you're like, you know, I think I need to cut back on something, that's probably telling you something. I used to say the easiest way to tell if you have a drug and alcohol problem, if it's causing problems in your life, you have a drug and alcohol problem. I don't care what you, whatever the problem is. It's causing relationship problems, you got a drug and alcohol problem. It's causing legal difficulties, you got a drug and alcohol problem. It's causing you to feel crappy so that you don't go to work, you've got a drug and alcohol problem. 
It's that simple. And you're still using. If I said Coca-Cola is bad for you and you can't have Coca-Cola because it's going to kill you, could you give up Coca-Cola? If you tried really, really hard. Right? It would be hard. It would be hard, but you could probably do it. Right? Why do people fight so hard to want to be able to drink or want to be able to continue their drug use? It's because it means more to them than their health or than their life. And that's a problem. And the substance runs your world. So again, these are just some things. Keep in mind, many people deny they have a problem. They just do. Treatment of some disorders um, may require detoxification that has to be closely monitored, especially like alcohol. That's why we have detox you know, centers. Nearly all programs, um, treatment compliance is a problem and dropout rates in therapy are high. We know it. You're not ready yet. You haven't hit bottom yet. It hasn't been bad enough for you to say, I'm done. Biological treatments, we can use um, medication therapies. That's what agonists and anti-agonists are. Um, so I'll give you an example, and abuse. And it's kind of an uh, like a form of aversion therapy. Anabuse is a substance that you take. You take it on a regular basis. It's a, it's a pill that you take every day. What happens is if you ingest alcohol when you have anabuse in you, it causes severe illness. Is that so that it links when you're using So then, right, so it forms a negative relationship, right? Because every time you drink, then you get sick. Every time you drink, then you get sick, less likely to drink. Again, it's an aversion therapy is what it is. We can use psychological treatments. Alcoholics Anonymous is self-help. It's not a therapy group. It's addicts helping other addicts. There's no therapist there. That's why it's usually free. It's usually in churches because they talk about a higher power. It's very, it's 12-step based. So it believes in a higher power. That sounds very much like God. And so it doesn't have to be God, but it sounds like God. So many churches are willing to let... Um, you know, AA or NA, Narcotics Anonymous, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, there's Love and Sex Addicts Anonymous. Um, there's Emotions Anonymous. There's a lot of them. But because of that higher power connotation or connection, many churches will allow people to use or those groups to use their facilities for free, right, as a result. There's motivational interviewing. We can use contingency management, that you'll get this if you do this, kind of like a token, you know, you stay abstinent, I'm going to, there's a contingency, you do this, you're going to get a reward some way. Um, competing reinforcement, again, you know, I give you the positive reinforcement instead of seeking the negative reinforcement um, that you're seeking. And then cognitive behavioral therapy, which tends to be you know, useful in a lot of the different treatments that we, or a lot of the different disorders we talked about. Kind of wrapping this up, what is contingency management? It's simple forms of, of contingency management uh, provide external incentives for improvement. It's been uh, proven quite effective in modifying substance intake. There are some people who believe that you can teach what's called controlled social drinking that you can learn to drink socially instead of abusing alcohol. But here's what I'm gonna throw out to you. I'm gonna, I just want you to think about this. Why? Why do you need to learn to drink socially? What, you, there's nothing else out there? You can't have sweet tea? You, you can't have you know, diet soda? You can't have something else? What is it that's so important about this substance 
that you have to try to maintain it. And I'm going to tell you that in and of itself is an indication it has more power over you than you think it does. Why are you trying to control it? It's not needed in your body to function. Yeah. Would you equate this to like a form, like obviously it's not structured to control physical mechanism, but right. would you equate this to like encouraging someone to be on methadone but for alcohol? Like it is. So social drinking would be very much like, you know, methadone treatment for heroin. That's a lesser. But again, why would you do that unless you needed to? The only way I would say controlled drinking might be there, maybe to avoid some withdrawal symptoms, but I, I don't see how that, th there's a benefit to that. And this was big when I was doing drug and alcohol work and I didn't support it then. I mean, there are some people, there is success you know, that some people, and I believe it's true, some people can learn to, to, you know, for example, drink with moderation. But then the question is, they're genetically different than those who can't. And why are you playing with that loaded weapon? How do you know whether you're the person who can or can't? Abstinence is a much better plan. Just throwing it out there. Right? Relapse prevention approaches begin acknowledging relapse is very likely. Um, so we can do, you know, one of the things that we have to do is we have to be careful of what's called the abstinence violation effect. That people re relapse, and then because I violated my abstinence, I'm like, well, I had one, I might as well just go tie one on. But if you do it differently, you go, okay, I've had one, but I relapsed. I had one. But that's better than the last time I relapsed where I had ten. Then it's a much different perspective. Does that make sense? It helps to alleviate this abstinence violation effect, right? Which actually encourages resumption of the substance abuse because they see it as a slip or a bump in the road. It does not necessarily predict that they're a failure. They could still be improving even though they tripped up. It's not a failure. It might have been a mistake, but it's not a failure. And again, that's a month, it's a, it's a mental, it's, a, it's kind of a cognitive behavioral approach. Um, last two slides and then we're all done. Community reinforcement model um, uses social, uh, family, vocational, and recreational reinforcers to motivate a client to reduce alcohol consumption, um, providing them things like assertiveness training and problem solving and goal setting and anti-abuse compliance and job skills, providing alternative, you know, um, alternative options. I just saw, and this is kind of related to this, which really kind of interesting. Um, I just saw in the news last night, I was slipping through channels, or I guess it, maybe it was even Facebook uh, on my phone. Do you know that they are actually having abstinence bars? Yeah, social abstinence. And, yep, social abstinence bars. There's some in Texas, they're popping up around the country, where it's a bar, just like a bar setting, you would go for sports and wings and everything, but there's no alcohol. And it's to replace. See, one of the things you're asking people to do to stop using, give up your social network. Give up your way of celebrating life. You know, Give up your recreational activities. Because you can't hang with people, places, and things. It takes you back to your road. So maybe you love playing pool. You know, maybe you love watching the game with other people and socializing and dancing and doing all those things, 
oh, but you can't go out to the bars or the clubs anymore because they have alcohol. This is an alternative. It's a non-drinking alternative that provides an opportunity for people to enjoy and socialize and maintain a lifestyle that they've become accustomed to without the alcohol or substance. It's kind of interesting, I like that. That's actually something I think I could probably do is actually be a, 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 a social abstinence bar owner. I think I could do that. I could see that. Um, and then the last two slides, abstinence voucher reinforcement. Uh, participants earn monetary reinforcement contingent upon abstinence. So paying people to stay sober or it's to stay away from the drug. Maybe that's better than giving them methadone. I'll pay you money if you don't use. Why not? We're paying money anyway. You're paying your tax dollars anyway. Maybe this is an alternative, right? So again, we know that they were, look at this, studies indicate voucher incentives were as effective as cognitive behavioral therapy during treatment. So if we mixed it together, come to cognitive behavioral therapy and we'll pay you not to use, just saying. Last slide is this one, multi-component cognitive behavioral therapy. That really is kind of the, the treatment of choice, if you will, right? This approach has been well-established for smoking sensation, helpful for cocaine dependence as well. When combined with community reinforcement, behavioral marital therapy, it appears very promising in the treatment of alcohol dependence too. So you're restructuring their thinking, retraining them, reestablishing social networks and all those kind of things without alcohol, without substances present. So any questions about any of those? All right, thanks for listening.